My name is Allison Felis, and this is I'll Follow You, a podcast featuring light and lively conversations about film, music, and creative culture, coming to you from the People's Republic of Rogers Park on the far northeast side of Chicago. Today, I am welcoming back to the show my first repeat guest, who also happens to be the human I'm sheltering in place with, the writer, musician, and scholar Brian Kremens. Brian's joining me today for a recorded version of an ongoing conversation we've basically been having since we first met a little over a decade ago, all about our favorite books about music. Because we're both writers and both musicians, it turns out we have a lot of thoughts about the intersection of those two disciplines. We both chose a small stack of books that are important to us individually, though of course there's a lot of overlap between our lists, and of course there were dozens of other books that came to mind during the course of the conversation. In talking about those books, we also discuss the way music critics listen to music versus the way musicians listen to music, how descriptive language can mystify what a musician is actually doing in a way that might not be helpful, how the best books can feel more like traveling companions rather than destination points, and spending time imagining what certain albums sounded like in the days before everything was instantly available to us online. Plus, Brian finally goes on the record with his comparison between the Hall & Oates song I Can't Go For That and Radiohead's Everything In Its Right Place. For a list of pretty much everything we mention here, please be sure to check out the comprehensive show notes over on my blog at queenofpeaches.com. And now, my conversation with Brian Kremens about our favorite books about music. So hi, Brian. Hi. Thank you for being the first repeat guest on the, on the podcast. Well, thank you for asking me to do it. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm glad that you could walk to the other side of the apartment to to be with me here in the studio, so to speak. Well, and I, I haven't talked to many people in the last like five or six weeks, other than you, I guess. I hope, <laughs> I hope I'm coherent. I mean, I've just been I've just been emailing people. I shouldn't say that. I've seen you know I've obviously been in touch with friends and and family, but you know it's. It's different than when you're teaching every day and talking to how many kids every week. So, yeah. So um, we've been having this conversation about music books for a long time. Yeah. Um, and it's something that like I was sort of like idly thinking about like typing up on my blog, and maybe I'll still do a post on that at some point. But um, I thought it might be a better conversation to have because I you know, I'm not a solo artist. It's like music happens in relation to people right. and, and especially in the way that we make music together. And so, um, yeah, I thought having a conversation about these music books that we love um, might be a more fruitful way of, of discussing them because I'm just going to end up plagiarizing you a lot if I write it down anyway oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> with some of your insights that you've shared with me over the years. So, um, yeah, so... I always think of that that Travis Morrison quote um, that I'll I'll put in the show notes uh, where where it comes from in the full quote, but where he, he talks about um, you know music critics and music fans having taste and musicians having appetite, and he was he you know he in the context of that quote was talking about um, 
the kind of genres that people sort of allow themselves to explore. Um, but I think it sort of is a good jumping off place for talking about music books because I mm. feel like for musicians, yeah, the way that you read about music too is different. Um, it, it just in the way that you react to it and, and the, what, what resonates with you right. with, with it. Right. Well, we always joke about the, was it a pitchfork review that was describing? <laughs> I was, I was wondering when yeah, this was going to come up. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, uh, your favorite or one of your favorite bands, the clientele and they, I think admirably we're trying to describe what the band sounds like because they do have a very distinctive 60s influence sound. But it was clear that um, the writer was not a musician. So what they were describing was not accurate to what actually was happening. And in, and in trying to, yeah, in trying to describe the sound of the guitar. It was it became a little absurd, you know, because he, he plays a, you know, a Rickenbacker or a, a hollow body less, uh, no a body telecaster you know into a uh a deluxe reverb fender amp right and it's it's got a tremolo sound so the and they're and they're known for their yeah. trem it's got that echoey yeah. echoey sound it's echoey yeah. and it has that kind of pulsating sound that you get from that amp but but i think the description in pitchfork was that it was the echo wobbly tone that he's known for which it is echo wobbly yes i mean you can definitely describe that as an echo <laughs> echo wobbly But it also is just a, a hollow body guitar through a Fender Deluxe Reverb, which, which again, does it matter? Does the, does the does the writer need to know that? Maybe I, I think that the, the, because it, it calling it echo wobbly tone mystifies it in a way that I think is not helpful. Maybe yeah, you know, the, 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 there's a mystification to it. You could just describe exactly what it is that they're using to create that particular sound, and I think that's more interesting. And I don't know if that goes back to what you mentioned with Travis Morrison's argument but i think that there's something to be said for that the the the, the best music books just in my per, in my opinion are the ones that demystify the process and that might be something that we we talk about as we go along today well and that was you know and and you know go, br- branching out from that divide of you know m- music people versus musicians and then you know as we were preparing for this episode a couple of days ago when we were trying pulling pulling books off the shelf and i i sort of realized that the the music books that i respond to most they also fall into kind of two camps, mm-hmm. and, you know, one of which is music books written by practitioners, like yeah. written by musicians, and then music books written by historians, right. like not critics, because I sort of feel like the music historians, I mean, like Charles Shaw Murray is the one that immediately comes to mind yeah. in his, his writing on Jimi Hendrix and on John Lee Hooker. Um, he, he has such clearly deep feeling for the material, but is so good at the yeah. research and the yeah. historical context that that's what makes um, you know crosstown traffic especially. I'm not. I haven't finished the the John Lee Hooker book. It's so long. Right. Um, but uh, that's what makes that book so valuable is the way that he puts Jimi Hendrix mm. in this very very specific context. Mm. And um, and so yeah, that's that's why that has become one of my favorite books about music um, in recent years. And I and I feel like is is sort of yeah like I said gave me a framework to understand like okay the music books that like I really do love and really do feel are unique and valuable and and have really changed the way that I think about music or the way that I write about mm-hmm. music or the way I talk about music it's on those two en- ends of the spectrum sort yeah. of creative people who are uniquely well suited to talking about their practice mm-hmm. and then and then the people who actually give give the context and give the historical yeah. sort of um backing on it and he plays he's not, he, he he's he's a guitar player you know he talks about that a little bit in 
crosstown traffic. So he has some of that that technical mm-hmm. knowledge. But I think that's why that book um, works so well. Uh, and it was really popular when it first came out in the late 80s, I think. It's, I don't know how well-remembered it is now. I guess it depends on how much of a Hendrix fan somebody is or how interested they are in studying about him, that that's one you're going to go back to. But that book also resists the kind of hagiography that happens mm-hmm. in a lot of biographies. Right. And I noticed that the ones that... Or or in music reviews, right. you know, that are right. like, Jimi Hendrix, master of yeah. the guitar. It's like, okay, well, what are you actually telling me when you right. say that, you know? Yeah, from the beginning of time, there have been guitar players, <laughs> yeah. but only one has been as awesome <laughs> as Jimi Hendrix. And I, I think the books, the music books, a lot of the ones I noticed that I was selecting, and we could talk in a minute about whatever parameters that we had to select <laughs> select some of these to talk about um for me I, I don't like the ones that are that are trying to put people on pedestals you know i they're not they just don't i don't find them interesting and i i don't find that i'm enjoying them and that might be why i don't i notice in the books that i was putting down on my list or putting on the desk here in front of us are are mostly written by either historians or critics, which is interesting. Mm. Um, I don't have a lot of memoirs uh, by actual musicians. There's only one that I have, or two, in my uh, in my stack, and the rest of them are are by people that are either critics or scholars or historians, and with only a couple of exceptions. So we maybe can talk about that later too, like what what works and what doesn't seem to work in some of those kind of books. Yeah. So I mean, do you want to just I mean, I've already mentioned Charles R. Murray. I mean, like I said, because Crosstown Traffic. Um, I'm trying to remember. Like, did you? Yeah, you gave it to me. You you encouraged me to I read think it. So. Yeah. yeah, I think I, I had recommended that one. Because in my in my early days of working in um, publishing, I, I had worked on um, Greg Tate's book Midnight Lightning about Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that Crosstown Traffic was probably cited in there. Uh, so I think I probably yeah, knew I of it. it yeah. And just had never read it. And I, yeah, I remember you you saying how good it was. Yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, so what's uh, what's on your list? What, so, what comes first to mind? And then we can, you know, I'll actually name the ones that I, after we talked about this more and knew we were going to do the podcast, uh, and we talked about, yeah, our favorite books, I tried to think, and these are ones that I, some of which I haven't read in 30 years. I mean, some of them are ones I read either late in high school or in college. Some are ones I've read and even taught more recently, you know, but for me, um, you know, the one the one that I always start with that was the first book I, I, I really found fascinating, even though it's, I, I haven't reread it since 1988 or 89. So I can't necessarily vouch for how solid it is now. But it's the it's the Robert Shelton, uh, The Life and Music of Bob Dylan, uh, No Direction Home, which which I had I bought in high school in a cheap Valentine paperback edition that I read so frequently that I, you know, split the binding and the, the inserts were falling out of it <laughs> because it's an unusual book. We were talking about this before in the sense that it it is a, it parts of it are a traditional biography where he's describing these events in Dylan's life from, you know, the early days um, in Greenwich Village and even, you know, his, his growing up in Minnesota. And it goes up to the mid 80s when it was published. So it stops in, you know, 83 or 84, I think. Uh, I actually think it stops uh, around the time Dylan's making um, the Empire Burlesque album, which was supposed to be his comeback, <laughs> you know, in the mid '80s, and it had the, you know the ridiculous production on it with fabulous songs, but the production kind of um, kind of uh, makes it difficult maybe to listen to now. Uh, but that was the first one that I read because I was so into Bob Dylan, and I was starting to think about maybe playing music myself, that, that that seemed like a great entry point to understand more about him. Oh, so and you hadn't been playing when you read that. I hadn't, not yet. I, I, did, I think I mean, because you've always been a music listener. But yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, it's true. Yeah, you started would, playing late. Yeah. I think that's why I thought of that one, because I 
I started playing in my uh, the summer before my senior year of high school. So I probably read that book a year or two before. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it probably got me more interested in wanting to learn how to play because of the way he he alternates the biographical sections of the book with overviews of each album, these song by song breakdowns of mm. all the images and all the reference points and all the musicians that played on it. So it's it's an odd book that's sort of a combination of biography and the kind of list like books that we were talking about, like Revolution in the Head, the Beatles book. Yeah, where it's really exhaustive, yeah. like trivia, you know, on And it on, goes album by album and yeah. song by song. So it's kind of a hybrid of those two. So it doesn't work as a complete narrative, but the actual breakdown of the songs that are in um in the different chapters are, are they have a catalog like quality that I enjoy probably. I mean, they're like what Walter Benjamin does, mm. right? Where it's just this catalog of ideas <laughs> and there's no coherent narrative in those sections, but it was fun. It was a way to listen to the songs. Well, and then your brain starts yeah. to impose narrative on yeah. it. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you kind of have your own narrative walking into it. If you've heard the song before and then you listen to it with the book, which, you know, as a lot of people do, you listen along and then you read along to figure out like what he was trying to do or what Robert Shelton speculated that he was trying to do. Uh, so that was the one for me that I, I started with. But um, but real quick before you mention some of yours, the other ones that are on my pile here are Pedal Pusher by Lori Lundeen, which I still think uh, came out in 2008 or 9, 2008, I think. Uh, and I still think that's the best description of what it's like to be in a band and to play in a, in a DIY sort of band, like what it's like to rehearse, what it's like to put together press kits, what it's like to uh, to learn how to play your instrument better. And I, I have, I've not read a, b- a book either before or since then that's a solid. Because it's so one. unsparing, yeah. like at, at the glimpse of the tedium yeah. and yeah. the challenges yeah. and the frustrations. Yeah. And yeah, it's great. I mean, and she has a great sense of humor and a really good style. So that, that one is over here i have why sinatra matters by pete hamill oh which is so good which yeah it's it's just a great cultural history but but hamill also has a good sensibility of of how sinatra developed his sound especially his voice as an instrument and the way he he delves into that history of sinatra's practice along with sinatra's connections to his immigrant background and his italian-american background is really interesting in that book and it's also really compact yeah i was just gonna say (laughs) the amount of ground that he covers in like what is that like 250 pages i mean it's like so punchy and so just yeah it's so good yeah that's a great one uh and then uh, you know on my stack i've got uh john porcelino's perfect example which is an autobiographical comic or graphic novel if you want to call it that that's not entirely about music but the parts that are about music are really i think really powerful and convey what it is to be a fan of music that you're first discovering because because there's the the title you know comes from a husker dune song from new day rising but all right then, husker do reference number one yeah. we'll see how many more <laughs> we can work into this conversation <laughs> and uh the way he he then incorporates discovering these albums for the first time and and imagining that when he goes to college, everybody will be listening to them. When I first read it, I just resonated with that because I thought the same thing before I went to college and then discovered that no one else in the early 90s really remembered who screwed or cared really one way or the other. So that's in there. And then, you know, the ones that we share in common would be, I think, the uh, uh, the Leave on Helm, we, This Wheel's on Fire, uh, his autobiography from the mid-90s, late 90s. I, I, this yeah. is, we have the newer edition. I don't remember when it first came out, I think it was mid nineties. And then um, uh, the bluesman by Julio Finn. We'll talk about some of those blues uh, uh, books 
that we like. So those those are some of the ones I picked, which we can discuss as we go along. I didn't have any particular parameters other than, I, as I said, I don't really like musician memoirs that much that I would say that I wanted to talk about them. We we both like Andy Summers. The Andy book, Summers though, one I like his memoir. Yeah, uh, and because um, you had recommended that to me as again yeah. being sort of like a fairly true yeah. look into. Um, what it is to be you know i mean obviously the police um are much bigger than <laughs> laurie's band yeah. zuzu's pedals um but uh you know on on their scale and yeah. especially like there's that wonderful passage where he talks about like the solo in uh yeah. in yeah. what is it every breath you take or oh the the guitar pattern right where he yeah. talks about trying to fi- yeah trying to figure out how to how to bring that song to life and <laughs> thinking about the uh what was he listening to? Well, he, you know, that? he he, ta- he talks about how, like, usually when, like, a journalist would ask him that he was like, they don't actually want to know. And so yeah. he, he would be like, oh, yeah, it was, um, you know, I was just touched by Grace that day and, and made it sound really mystical. Right. And he'd been just, like, playing Bartok pieces, That's you right. know? That's what it was. Right. And then that gave and those And those patterns moment, were right? sort of in his fingers. And he was yeah. like, and that and I love that passage in the yeah. book where I, I don't know if we have a copy of it in the house yeah. now, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, where he talks about like, yeah, if it's in your fingers, it comes out right. one way or another and it comes out in your own voice, mm-hmm. you know, but that's, he was like, there's no mystery to it. There's yeah. no, there is no like touched by grace or touched by the angels. Right. It's, it's what, it's what's in you based on what you've been right. interacting with and what's in your, in your sphere. And it's putting in the work. I, it's like what I said right. earlier. I think I, I enjoy the ones that talk about the process of learning and then learning how to play music and then creating it. I'm, I'm, I'm always less interested in the books that talk about the lifestyle and, yeah, and, yeah. and the scene, you know, that we were talking this morning about the Richard Lloyd autobiography, Richard Lloyd from television, some of which is amazing. I mean, cause he, you know, he calls himself the alchemical guitarist and, and, and all has, the mystical shit has is a crazy, lot of great, yeah. the mystical stuff in that book is fabulous. Um, but, but the parts about all the drugs, you know, it, it, how many times can you read that narrative? Like yeah. oh, I got in the band and then we got a little bit of success. Then I took a lot of drugs. And then <laughs> things went bad. And I feel like a lot of those are the books I tend to get bored with pretty easily or I don't finish them. Yeah, because it's like the details may be different, but like the the, 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 the plot points are kind of interchangeable right. from book to book, you know, yeah. on, on those types of memoirs, yeah. you know. Whereas the books that, that talk, like Laurie's book, as we said, or the Andy Summers book, that actually talk about the learning process and the discovery of music. Those are the ones that I think are more fun mm-hmm. because you feel like you're discovering these things with the writer and then hopefully you want to go out and discover them for yourself. That's for me, that was the fun part about reading a lot of these books when I was younger and first learning to play music was was sort of discovering like what these people listen to and what influenced them and then trying to tra- track down those influences myself and to see what I can get out of them. Well, that goes back to what you were just saying about Benjamin, where yeah. it becomes that sort of like you're in the arcade and you're yeah. sort of like bouncing and making the associations yeah. from like piece to piece to piece. And especially, you know, I mean, uh, coming up in the in the late 80s and, and early 90s with no Internet, right. it was so hard to find this stuff. Yeah. And so it really did. It was the information that you gleaned was more valuable because right. it was harder to find. Yeah. And they, they the books then became traveling companions more so than destination points if Mm. that makes sense whereas i I think now with everything we have available um on the internet and i i like having that information available too i encourage my students to use you know (laughs) electronic sources you know i try not to fetishize books too much but but the but the effort that was needed to find 
not just the records that some of these books talked about, but also the the, the, the books themselves became part of the adventure. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the one I forgot to mention is the Clinton Halen book, From the Velvets to the Voidoids, mm. you know, which for me and for a lot of my friends in the early 90s was a real touchstone because there were we knew about the Velvet Underground and we knew about the Stooges and we, we knew about the New York Dolls. Um, but none of us knew about the Cleveland bands, which are a big part in that book. You know, very few of us had heard Pirubu, let alone Rocket from the Tombs or the Mirrors um, or the Electric Eels. And so to read about those bands in that book, not only about their sound, but also about their their philosophy of just creating this work themselves outside the mainstream, um, the, the record companies of the time was really exciting, you know, and and and. Now you, you can discover that material online. You can hear that music. But what became exciting about so much of those, those kinds of books at that time was that you had to imagine what the music sounded like because <laughs> you had no access to mm. it. It took me a long time to find any of those, some of those records. And so um, in some cases, when I finally heard the records, I was disappointed because what I had imagined <laughs> was better. Um, uh, I don't know if this is a great example, but when I first read um, Lipstick Traces by Grill Marcus, uh, I had never heard the Sex Pistols, and the way he describes them is, <laughs> I think he calls it like listening to a car crash. I was so excited to get the album, and I bought Nevermind the Bollocks and Fear of a Black Planet by Public Enemy on the same day <laughs> at a record store on Main Street in Watertown, Connecticut, and I was so disappointed by the Sex Pistols, because it didn't sound like a car crash. It, it, it was good, yeah. but it just sounded, as some people have described them, as like really sped up distorted Chuck Berry licks. I forget, maybe Marcus even uses that description somebody does. And so it was disappointing because it wasn't as, as horrible sounding as I had hoped it would be. In your brain yeah. for how long you've yeah. been cher- for, cherishing this yeah. notion. Yeah, yeah, because I just hadn't, I mean, not that the pistols were obscure. I mean, you could get those albums, but I didn't have it. And, you know, I didn't, I had Well, and you have to them. go to the store. Yeah, I mean, I'd you can't just download it. it. And, yeah. and, and, and so when I finally got it, I remember thinking, I, I remember thinking of the two albums that, Public Enemy was much more punk because it sounded like a wall of noise in the way the Pistols just didn't. Maybe mm. at the time they did. So that that was one of the disappointments of those days <laughs> when you when you had to like wait to yeah. get your hands on the material. And sometimes it didn't. It wasn't quite what was expected. Well, but the thing I think is crucial here, though, to point out is that like like you were saying, like in the constellation of like other other friends of yours who were players, is that you guys didn't you guys didn't just. Uh, pursue these these albums as trophies. It wasn't no. like it wasn't that collector's influence right. where it was like, ah, yes, I have to source this obscure thing just so I have it. Right. It was like you were trying to source this music so that you could hear it and learn from it right. and and enter into a conversation with it, yeah. and not just you know be like those those collectors who just like they they find the obscure thing, like I said, yeah, like like a trophy where they just right. want to brag a, right. that they have it, where it's kind of like well but what do you think about the music man you know exactly and that that's where i think um yeah i, I can remember having good friends in college where um, my friend enrico riley who's a you know a painter and, and teaches studio art up at dartmouth now when we were undergrads together and playing in bands uh we would trade off some of the hendrix books that were coming out you know i would read one and he'd say how was that one was that pretty good and I'd say, yeah, that biography is decent or the, you know, the, uh, the, the Eddie Kramer book with John McDermott's mm. a good one to read. This other one's okay, but it's not as good as the Charles Murray book. Um, or we would trade off some of the, those early books on the blues tradition, like, like Deep Blues by Robert Palmer, mm. which is another fantastic one that had a big impact on me. 
um, or you know we said before the the Julio Finn the bluesman um, on the on the sort of um, the hoodoo roots of of the blues tradition. I mean, those were things we did pass to each other, you know, and say, oh, can I borrow that one? Can I take a look at that? What's that book about? So that we could, it would inform what we were doing mm. musically. And it was exciting. And it was it, there was an innocence to it, I think, also. Like you said, we, it wasn't about trying to be competitive and, and saying, well, I have a copy of Pet Sounds and I have a copy of Forever Changes and I have a copy of Are You Experienced? And, and uh, these are the best albums of all time. And here's why they're the best albums of all time. Yeah, where you sort of lock into your own taste as this sort of metric for, you know, something. Yeah, yeah. And, as, and as a way of, of um, yeah, as a way of feeling superior to other people. I, I don't think that's what it was about. Well, I shouldn't say that. We, 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 <laughs> there were definitely, there were definitely, <laughs> I, and I say this as someone who is now a, a true deadhead, but at the time, you know, I, I had some issues with some of the jam bands uh, and the kids that played in jam bands when I was in college. So we probably did use it as a way, to, or at least I did as a way to feel superior to them. And I regret that now. But, um, but, but there was still a genuine attempt to learn about this tradition that we thought we were coming out of we like the blues and we I, I liked a lot of noisy punk rock stuff but finding out about this history of this music was was really important and in reading something like Clinton Halen's book what was interesting if, if for people that have read that is that so many of those early 70s proto-punk musicians were really well read and were writers I mean yeah, people yeah, always yeah, think yeah. of Patti Smith as the as the example of that but but Lenny Kay from her band you know, started as a as a rock critic, has written on on crooners. I forget the name of his his study of the crooning tradition. No, well, um, he's a co-author on on Whelan's um, memoir. He's a co-author yeah. on that. Uh, Peter Lochner. I always say Laughter because I didn't know how to pronounce his name until recently. Well, it's, you know the the um, hazards of reading stuff in books that right. I'd never hear it pronounced. Uh, he wrote for Cream Magazine, and they they had this tradition of writing about the music that they were either listening to or trying to make themselves uh, mm-hmm. in that. New York and, and Cleveland scene of the of the 70s. So reading about them making music, but also reading and writing about music was exciting in a book like that to see that, oh, there were there were these kids doing this 20 years before us at that time because mm-hmm. it was the early 90s. And, and to realize that was, was kind of exciting. You felt like you were part of a larger community um, that maybe you couldn't see or, uh, with people that you were never going to meet, but at least you were part of a longer bigger bigger um, this web this web of of, uh, of people that were listening to all different kinds of music that made it exciting and that probably therefore influences the books that you know I picked <laughs> you know in terms of what they're like and, and again I don't want to say that these are the best music books ever written for me they are and for other people oh yeah, yeah no I mean this isn't like saying yeah. these are the best books but like cool. as musicians and as yeah both of us are writers yeah. too it's like I sort yeah. of feel like we have a unique sort of perspective yeah. on like, yeah, what, what books are, are giving you the goods, yeah. you know? Cause yeah, I mean, I, you know, talking about, you know, musicians who are also writers. I mean, like I, I feel the same way like about um, Wayne Coyne. Like I feel sure, like yeah. I, you know, I, I don't like the flaming lips that much, but like right. I love reading Wayne Coyne yeah, talking about that. being a musician. You know, right. I think he's, he's really insightful. And, um, and Jonathan Myberg from, from Shearwater too is a yeah, great, sure. is a great writer about right. music. And so, yeah, when you can, when you can key into those voices, yeah, that have that, um, the experience to mm-hmm. bring to bear on it too. Cause it, like you said, I mean, if you're, if you're just talking about sort of like, yeah, I don't know, I, I play the drums and I just stumbled <laughs> into it and, right. you know, and it's like, it's and cool and, you know. And that's fine. There's a place, there's yeah. a place for that yeah. too, you know, but, um, but yeah, but it, but 
but there's more out there. There's more to discover. That's kind of fun and exciting once you once you track it down. And that and that goes beyond, like I said, yeah, just the just the the cliches, you right. know, like where right. it gets to where you either like are really learning about like historical context or right. um or 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 feeling more the the heart of what it is to mm-hmm. to be a musician. I mean, right. that's um in in recent years I've become obsessed with Robert Fripp yeah. and um yeah. his writing on his blog about music is just um some of the most influential yeah. stuff for me. I mean, it's not in a book, but mm-hmm. um yeah, it's he's so with speaking of the mysticism, mm-hmm. you know, with all the studies that he's done on Gurdjieff and and yeah. and all that stuff that he uh, that he brings into his practice as a musician for you know close to sixty years right. or however long he's been playing. I mean, it's just like ah, it's just my favorite stuff. <laughs> and and I think we were talking the other day. The, the great book I think on him is the Eric Tam mm. biography because it captures. It's a rare case I think of a biography that, that where the where Tam resonates really deeply with what Fripp is trying to do and is skeptical of some of it, but also mm. respectful and modest enough that he he takes Fripp at his word and, and goes through a whole part of the book where he, um, he's gone to one of the, uh, the guitar craft circle, um, you know, events, the three-day classes. You yeah, know, the so workshops. He, the workshops, yeah. and so he describes that process and the ups and downs of it. And that's a, that's a great example of a, of a book about a musician that I think really captures what they're trying to do. And I don't know what Fripp thought of it, but it's, it's definitely one that's worth looking at, especially because it's on his website now. It's out of print, but you can get it off of his site. Yeah, I got to grab you know? it. I've never read yeah. it. But I think what, what I was going to ask you about, too, is, you know, one of the ones you have on your, your stack there is the, uh, the Carl Wilson book about Celine Dion. And, I, <laughs> and, and that's one, since it's part of the 33 and a third series, that maybe it seems like an anomaly in that series. Because I think of 33 and a third as, as being so focused on the, book, on the albums that are, are typically described as being the greatest of all time, whatever that means. And so that one is not, she's not a performer, I would have thought. They would have been interested in they should be but you know the fact that that's your one of your favorites is kind of interesting well and that was definitely dominated the conversation about it when the book came oh, out because okay. yeah 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 because i i had been reading carl wilson's um criticism in his blog online on zoilus um for uh for a while um and uh and i remember when the book was announced and everyone was like because that was yeah whenever that when did this come out um in the late 2000s, 2007, yeah. And so sort of like in that, you know, early to mid 2000s, there was all that sort of like chatter about authenticity in music oh, sure. and like what yeah. is authenticity yeah. and, and how does that influence your taste and the poptimism, you know, people who were like, no, authenticity, you know, no, it should be, you know, the the craft of pop is the thing. And, and, and mm. there was all those conversations going on in the, in the sort of early, heyday of, of blogging, early, of music, music blogging. So that was early 2000s? About? Yeah, early mid 2000s. I mean, like okay. I, I always think of it as sort of like, yeah, circa. 2004 2005 okay I missed out I mean I was finishing grad school and starting you know uh, my first job out of grad school so I missed out on a lot of that so that's I'm not as familiar with that kind of division but I know you've mentioned it so it's kind of interesting. well and that's yeah I mean and that's like a whole other like side of the conversation that we may still delve into but just as far as sort of my yeah my being influenced by by those blogs mm-hmm. and really and really voraciously reading pitchfork and yeah. flux blog and and all those oh, blogs sure. that were big yeah. at the time right. um and that were really a, a big a big part of my experience of 
being a music listener mm-hmm. um, in, in that era, in that decade. Um, so yeah, so it was a really, really big deal when, when it first came out um, because it was like, Celine Neon, ha ha ha, mm-hmm. what a punchline, you know? And then for him to like, that's what he was dissecting was, mm-hmm. was sort of, he was preempting that response oh, okay. where, where yep. people were sort of like responding to her as like, oh, she's so cheesy mm-hmm. and it's so inauthentic, you know, oh, these, okay. these weepy okay. ballads, right. you know, and, and obviously everyone was sort of, you know, remembered the, the, <laughs> the, the year that she was on the Oscars with Elliot Smith, you know, and, oh, and sure. Elliot Smith right. was in his gorgeous white suit right. and was singing the Goodwill hunting songs and, mm-hmm. and everyone was like, where did this guy come from? You know, while mm-hmm. she's doing her power ballads. And, um, and so, yeah, anyway, whole, whole point of that background being that, in the Let's Talk About Love mm-hmm. book, uh, the subtitle being A Journey to the End of Taste mm-hmm. and really looking at taste formation mm-hmm. and interrogating that, you know, because mm-hmm. I I think that in in the way that I was, um, again, consuming all that that blog reading, it was like a way of of trying to like train myself into oh, coolness, sure. right. you know, yeah, where yeah. I was, you know, in my early 20s and new, new to Chicago and was... Um, hadn't performed myself in a number of years and it was mm-hmm. still a year, a few years out before I met you and we started playing right. in the band together. And so I was so hungry for connection with music and the way that that sort of manifested with me was reading all these bloggers and critics, mm-hmm. um, writing about m- music and writing reviews of music. And, um, and so I, I, you know, I don't, I always call myself gullible and I don't think that's the right word for it. But, you know, there was this part of me that always was was taking those taste ass- assessments mm-hmm. at face value. Oh, and sure. so suddenly and because so people would be like the Smiths best band ever. And I'd be like, yes, OK, I don't know the Smiths and I don't maybe actually like them that much. But sure. Yes. Best band ever. You know, and I, I would take that in and then I would feel bad if I didn't like them. And I, right. I'm so glad for like the younger generation of sort of like women critics coming out right, now right, who are right. kind of like, you know what, like stop shoving this stuff down my throat yeah, you yeah, know yeah. like it's not the best just because it's a boy with yeah, a guitar exactly. anyway that's which a whole is other thing. but that you know i, I have I, I well for a while my friend brandon and i had kind of a running joke where i think it was uh, yeah the mid 2000s when wilco was releasing uh, was the ghost is born or a ghost is born when is uh, that yeah that's it's later maybe i'm thinking of the one before that what's the one before that one uh, with, uh, the to- with the towers on yeah yankee hotel foxtrot yeah and he made me a mixtape <laughs> I think it was a mixtape, and if he hears this, he can correct this. But um, <laughs> Brandon, pl- please write in, and we'll publish your response I, <laughs> on I, my blog. I had to admit to him that although I did like Summer Teeth, and you know, I was okay with the first couple of Wilco albums, I didn't really enjoy them. And I remember him saying to me, "Like, how is that possible? You're like the perfect demographic. Like, you should be, you should be loving these albums." And I, I didn't. I thought they were. <laughs> I understood why other people enjoyed them and, and I respect them for what they are, but they didn't resonate with me at all. And so it, it, would be, it seemed to be an example, though, of like given my age at the time when those records were coming out, I was supposed to like them. I was supposed to like like feel that I had connected deeply with this band and I just didn't at all. Well, and that's the thing that makes me laugh now. I mean, now that we've, you know, known each other for over a decade and have been, you know, dating for, you know, mm-hmm. however long. And, uh, but like, I think back on like some of the early mix CDs that like I made for you, like, you know, just as we were getting together and like, yeah, Brian's gonna like this Andrew Bird track. And you were just like, no, I don't like it at all. And it was such a, it was so, it was so bizarre to me to be like, oh, here's this person who I respect a lot and who loves music and you're into really cool, obscure stuff. 
and and that you didn't like this some of the stuff that I was into mm-hmm. and I you know and for me I was kind of like well I've done my homework and I've ticked all these boxes and I've read the reviews and this is supposed to be good so how can you not like this and so that was like a big uh it was very refreshing to me to, to sort of like have that energy you know sort of have the balloon be popped a little bit and mm-hmm. I, I could sort of relax around um trying to trying to discipline my taste, you know. <laughs> and the last time we, we talked, did I tell the the Radiohead and Hall and Oates story? I don't remember if you did, and even if you did, tell it again, because it's one of my so, favorites. My friend Ken Cormier, who's a great poet and, and musician, he's a professor, creative writing professor at Quinnipiac, and we were in grad school together. Um, I was finishing, and he was sort of, I think he was just starting, so I was at the end of the process, and he had come back to school and, and was starting his PhD program, so we, we you know, we knew each other. Uh, we think we played like one one or two shows together, um, but he had a radio show on the UConn radio station. In Connecticut. In Connecticut. Yeah. Every Friday morning, University of Connecticut radio station, and he's also from Connecticut like I am, so I grew up outside of Waterbury, and I, I think Ken... I think he's from Bristol, in the middle of the state. He's a little older than me, um, but you know, had you know, as soon as he came back for his PhD at, at UConn, he decided to um, uh, have a radio show. On and Ken the himself is a great musician. Great too. musician. Oh, yeah. fantastic guitar player, great singer. Um, yeah, if, if people look want to look up his stuff, you can find it on YouTube and on his website. It's great. Yeah, I'll link it on uh, on my blog on Queen of Peaches. So he and his friend, and I, you know, I can't remember his his friend's name had had a show, and they they mostly played newer music that was coming out, you know, in two thousand two two thousand three. So that would have been, I remember he and his his co DJ were really into whatever the White Stripes album was coming oh, yeah. out that, at that time. And and uh, both of them really loved those two Radiohead records, Kid A and Amnesiac, right? So those were just, they were in constant rotation. And whatever else was out in the early 2000s, I don't, it's probably like right after the Strokes were not quite as beloved anymore, so all that. But that New York, yeah. all those New York bands, yeah, were out around that time. And there was a lot of the bands, too, uh, that were sounding like Joy Division that were coming yeah, out, you inter- know, like Interpol, Interpol and, you know, yeah. they, or they, I shouldn't say sounding like, but influenced by that post-punk well, stuff. Well, they, they sounded like Joy Division. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he invited me on. He's like, oh, just come on and we'll, we'll talk about music. Uh, and I'd never been on the radio before, so I thought it would be fun. And so I don't remember how this all developed, but I... I uh, I wanted to think about fun stuff to talk about. And it occurred to me when I was listening again to those two Radiohead records that they basically just sounded like Hall and Oates to me. Now, <laughs> Which is just, for so many people listening right now, I know that you're exploding because that's just like the most unholy comparison to make. But, but, but hear me out. You know, I think... So my thought on this was that not all Hall and Oates, but particularly... Um, What's the name of the song? I can't go for that. I can't go for that. No can do. No can do. The drum machine on that, to me, sounds like the kind of drum machines that they're using, uh, the electronic drums that they're using. Especially if you hear that intro, because it's like a lot of times on the radio, you don't hear the intro, like they're talking over it or they fade in on it. But if you go back to the track and you listen to it, yeah, this like the the click in. It's very artificial sounding. And it's not, they don't, Hall Notes were not trying to hide the fact that this was an artificial, I think it was a roll and copy rhythm that they were using on it. I mean, in the early 80s, my God. Yeah. So it it, it, it kind of gives the track, excuse me, that, that very distinctive sound. Without any attempt to sort of cover it up with real, you know, real drums or anything like that. Mm-hmm. 
And so I brought it on, and we compared it to what's the Lemon song on on uh, everything's in its right everything place, in its right place. And track, so I said, yeah, let's play the two K. of these. Let's play both of them together, and we would sort of talk over them. And I said, you know, all you people that think Radiohead is innovating in this way, it's already happened. Hall Notes did it. They did it in the early '80s. Why do we need to sort of praise them for doing something that's been done before? And not only has been done before but has made a huge impact on pop radio. Everybody was listening to I Can't Go For That. So anyway, we have this conversation and... His co-DJ got upset. She was angry at me. We started getting all these phone calls from you know, all these undergraduates waking up on campus who were just appalled, just just disgusted by the whole thing, you know, just, just angry that anybody would make that comparison. And especially at that time, because, again, the taste wars were so intense. Which I didn't know. Again, I had just, I was, I had either just finished my dissertation or was about to defend it. So I had been in that world. I wasn't reading all those blogs, you know, I just... I was reading Mojo Magazine, and I was, you know, I still loved my Lester Bangs books. And I, I think in the back of my mind, I said, well, this is something Lester Bangs would do. He would come on here. And, uh, you know, the week after that, I uh, we did our discussion of, of Van Halen, the Van Hagar era versus David Lee Roth and the sort of relationship between the, the sort of Hegelian dialectic between the two eras of Van Halen. <laughs> And again, in the also early two thousands, taking that so seriously, was, yeah. I just can't imagine what a bomb that was. Like, but, <laughs> and I want to tie it back to the Celine Dion book because it seems to me that if, as a singer, she is not that different from Elliot Smith. If mm-hmm. if you think about singing in the way that Charles Shaw Murray writes about the voice in the John Lee Hooker book, where he's using Roland Barthes and saying it's the grain of the voice is the phrase that he uses mm-hmm. from Barth, mm-hmm. right, where he says. You know, the, the grain of, of Hooker's voice is partly what makes those records, is just the, the distinctive idiosyncratic, lived-in, experienced quality of the voice is what attracts you to someone like that, mm-hmm. to that kind of singer. And I think that, that, that phrase, the grain of the voice that he uses, that he borrowed from, um, you know, Barth uh, for that book, applies really well to both Smith and Celine Dion because they're those instruments are so distinctive mm-hmm. and the way they deploy them is so powerful within the context in which they're singing that they're they shouldn't be seen as being from two different worlds they they really are after I think the same the same effect on the audience the same emotional impact it's just that their sound is obviously different and their means of communication is different and so that's why even when I made that comparison with Hall Notes I was partly trying to upset people <laughs> Trolling, as we would call it now, <laughs> trolling. But I, but I also meant it, like I, because yeah. gen- I genuinely loved both, and and I, I heard them as being part of the same tradition. I mean, I, I do sort of love Hollow Notes more, 
but but I didn't see them as being disparate in any way. It yeah. just it just was they were using the tools and that they had and the technology that they had to communicate. And I don't see that as being a distinction, which maybe means that I don't know what I'm listening to, <laughs> which is probably true. But I think that there's more of a relationship there than than people are willing to admit often. And that's yeah, and so the Carl Wilson book I think takes takes people who are going to be very defensive about their taste right. and sort of doles out the arguments for maybe why you should interrogate that and yeah. maybe why you shouldn't be so snide if your aunt Sally is like mm-hmm. really into Celine Dion maybe why she's responding to it mm-hmm. in a certain way and like the usefulness of that to people sort yeah. of in in the way that they use music uh, in in their personal lives mm-hmm. you know and um and so that was really revelatory for me when I read that at the time yeah, so right. I I um yeah, I haven't read it in a couple of years, but it's one that I always talk about and and recommend really highly because I think it's so smart, and because it's again because it knows it the book knows the audience that it's mm-hmm. talking to mm-hmm. and and is very gentle about sort of laying out, um yeah like I said why why you might want to reconsider some of those notions and and th- and and again this is one of the rare books of straight up criticism I think that really gets it right, mm-hmm. um in in the way that it d- discusses uh, Celine Dion as a, as a phenomenon. Well, see, this is interesting because of the ones that you love, you know, I think the assumption that um, people sometimes make is that you, uh, if you're reading a book on music, you're reading about a performer that you enjoy, which we do, right? You, there's yeah, a, often, there's a yeah. That you enjoy and you want to read more about them or you want to learn more about their life. But, but there's one book in particular that I know you're not a huge fan of the band that it's about and you're not terribly <laughs> interested in them, but you, you think it's one of the best music books ever written. I think you know which one I'm I know I'm exactly which about. one you're talking about. It's the next one on the pile here. It's um, Michael Braun's Love Me Do, The Beatles' Progress. And I often talk about the fact that I have no frame of reference for mm-hmm. the Beatles. I mean, I sort of, I like the early hits, sure, you know, yeah. just the little jukeboxy kind of things, but I don't have the Beatles' intense love that a lot of people my age do. My dad was a little too old for the Beatles. Yeah. Um, and he always says, he was like, well, if your mom hadn't died so young, like she probably would have had would have brought more of the Beatles into the house. Because she was the right age. She was the right yeah, age. She right. was born in um, 56. Um, oh, And sure. so, yeah, she yeah, would have been yeah. the perfect age for them. Yeah. And uh, and she sh- her birthday was the same birthday as, as George Harrison. Oh, right. And so, right. Uh, so I think that she had right. a special fondness um, yeah. for them because of that, too. But, um, yeah, so I have zero interest in the Beatles, you know, other than a few hits. And I, people have tried over the years to sort of indoctrinate yeah. me into Beatles. And they're fine. It's just I don't emotionally connect with them but when so you were teaching a class on the Beatles yeah last year last year Mm -hmm. and uh and so you'd gotten this book because you'd heard of it I I was trying to do research on the class because I was stepping in for a faculty member who had retired and I talking about books I'd read in college I my friend Lawrence was a big Beatles fan when we were undergrads and in a band together so back then I read you know I read some books on them but I wanted to refresh myself with with thinking about readings for the class, and so I started going through lists of like the best Beatles books uh, ever written, and that was the one that it was always, always came at the top, top of the list. Always, yeah. came, even even before it only came back into print uh, just uh, late last year, this year yeah. earlier this year. Um, and so yeah, that was sure. the one I, I had to uh, request it from, you know, another library in Illinois. It was a really Just beat up. decrepit old yeah, copy, yeah. Because that was all that was available. And, and the copies online were really expensive. Um, and I haven't even read it yet. I was so busy putting that class together and had so many other readings already lined up 
that I didn't have room for it in the <laughs> class. Um, but you ended up reading yeah, it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember why I grabbed it. You know, it was yeah. just like on your pile of the Beatles yeah. books. And I was like, oh, I'll check this out. I'm curious. Yeah. And it's just the best. It really genuinely is yeah. the best and smartest book about the Beatles because it, yeah. it was written right when they were breaking right. out. And yep. so it's very current. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't, it doesn't succumb to that like the Beatles are the best thing ever yeah, kind sure. of hagiographic, hey, hey you right. know, sort of like we can't speak any ill of them. And so since it's all really fresh and raw, like that energy is really interesting because it like the way that he writes about the Beatles, I mean, he just makes them look like douchebags, you and, know? And, 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 and Lennon himself really admired it, didn't he? Yeah, didn't yeah. Lennon, there's Lennon, this famous which, quote where he was right. like, yeah, he, he wrote it true because yeah. he wrote us like bastards, yeah, you know, right. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing that I love that he does structurally is that like every every couple chapters he'll open he'll open the chapter with a fan letter you oh, know sure. and so like the beginning of the book they're all you know what you would imagine these sort of like mm-hmm. Beatlemania kind of fan letters like dear John although the Beatles are fab in every way and form you are the fabiest of them all I love you John so much that I bought you this cuddly toy which is what I think of you as you know and they're these right. really effusive um, you know teeny bopper kind of kind of things. But then, like, as the book goes on, the letters get, like, weirder and mm-hmm. more serious and more, you know, it, it becomes this Greek chorus sort mm-hmm. of commenting on deeper sort of um, what what people were were really yeah. responding to in, the, in right. the Beatles, sort of in this incredibly astute and respectful way that wasn't making fun of the teenage girls who were screaming their heads right. off. And I remember you said that, which is which is very similar to the Hamill Why Sinatra Matters book, because right. he doesn't he doesn't ridicule the Bobby Soxers and he doesn't ridicule that part of Sinatra's career. And that's not to say that other writers necessarily do, but with Sinatra, <laughs> well, because yeah, they want to write about the fifties Sinatra, right? right? The cool the, Sinatra. The cool Sinatra. Yeah. But he, if anything, places more weight on the earlier material. That's mm-hmm. where he seems to find Sinatra to be the most interesting, Yeah, which I think is what maybe an affinity between those two books and the Braun I'm going to, I'm going to read. I have it on my list. Uh, to read this summer, so I'm looking forward to it. But, but yeah, because then, like at the really at the end, enjoy. I'm just gonna like read this letter from oh, yeah. from Love Me Do because it's at the very very end of the book, and it um, you know, because it's again, it's very historically based, and so this is right after the Kennedy assassination, oh, sure. yeah. and uh, and and this letter begins, dear Beatles. First of all, perhaps I should say that this is not a fan letter as such, in which I state that I love you all madly, etc. It is, rather, a brief note of thanks to you as a group from me as an individual and a self-appointed representative of my fellow countrymen. Perhaps you are not aware of this fact, but you are the first happy thing that has happened to us since the tragedy on November 22nd. You are the first spot of joy to come to a nation that is still very much in mourning, although the grief is now personal and unpublicized. It is for this reason that I extend my thanks and somewhat arbitrarily, those of my fellow Americans, to you. As I no, no doubt need not tell you, the responsibilities and demands of power are very great. Our nation, and to some degree each individual American, has power, and each of us, perhaps unconsciously, bears the burden of responsibility for the actions of our nation in the eyes of the world. For even a moment, if you let us show you that we are not the cold, business-like Yanks that so many believe us to be, then you will have done us a great service. You will have let us be uninhibitedly ourselves. You will have given us back, however briefly, our national identity. Although I do not believe for a moment that this letter will arrive in your hands, 
I nevertheless feel the need to express my gratitude for the gift of joy. It has been a very rare commodity on this side of the Atlantic for the past few months. Again, I thank you, and I wish you all the health and prosperity that your goodness deserves. May God be with you. Sincerely yours, Sharon Flood. And that's, like, yeah. what else do you need to say about right. music? I mean, that's right. so Fabulous. smart, and the sort of the, yeah. the way that he employs that and sort of builds yeah. sort of builds the book to that moment. Mm-hmm. I was just like, I think I read the whole book in one sitting and I was just yeah. floored. Yeah. It's like so smart. Yeah. No, I remember how how uh, how much you enjoyed that unexpectedly. Yeah. You know? Again, so, given that I'm not yeah, the biggest fan of the Beatles. Yeah, curious about it. I think um, but the fact that he he made the space for those voices as a kind of oral history is is uh, probably what makes that book what it is, right? Is just to get those other voices of the fans in there and and to see what they were hearing as opposed to sort of as you said before what now sometimes takes the place of that is taste well right. you should like the beatles because they were this historically significant and how could you doubt their greatness well it's but, like all those youtube channels that are like right. here's why paul mccartney is the best composer of all time you know <laughs> right. which is fine if you're yeah. into the beatles bang on that's great yeah. i'm glad that you think he's right. the best composer since beethoven but <laughs> right. that's taste right yeah yeah and that's not quite the same and i think um uh and i think the other books that you have uh again i'm looking at your your stack there with lush life the billy strayhorn biography and uh uh well the laura levinshan novel too i think would you say those also kind of bring you into that world of the musicians and the fans i mean what how do those fit in because i'm just looking at your other stack yeah curious to to find the kind of connections among these books that you you have well lara levithan's novel uh called the secret sugar daddies i'm really looking forward to having lara Lara on um hopefully hopefully in the next couple weeks um or whenever (laughs) coronavirus allows us to to be in conversation together but it's i just loved it she self-published it a couple years ago and it's so it's so the details that she includes about the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So there's this there's this deep deep sense of place yeah. about being from yeah. northeastern Illinois and driving, you know, the highways, you know, outside of Chicago and down into southern Illinois. And then um there's you know the scenes where she where she shows um, the the band that the the lead character is in in these like divey you know sure yeah uh, you know places like Sylvie's and Ronnie's you mm. know and 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 the way that she describes you know again similar to to Lori Lundin's Pedal Pusher right. you know uh, giving giving the sense of of playing in these like really really crappy clubs and how demoralizing it can be and also how thrilling it can be and then she also like manages to like in in and it's a novel. Um, but she manages to to wrap in um, religious music too, and yeah. and sort of um, worship music and worship pop music, and and that effect that that has on on people too. And I don't know, it's just it's one of my favorite novels about music that I've read in a really really long time. Right. I think she just um, got so many details so right, and and really mixed them all together in a way that, um, you know, I I always hate to say this, but it was like. She was she was speaking to me sort of in in this language of mm-hmm. this Midwestern music culture in these mm-hmm. different different facets that mm-hmm. I don't get I, I don't hear them spoken about you know and right. so that was like really revelatory to me to like have have this translated back in mm-hmm. into fiction like that I was just really really moved and just really loved it. Well, that's why you enjoy the cherry vanilla 
memoir also right you don't have you don't have that on your stack but I know it's one that you I think you talked about in the same way that you felt that kind of resonance with what she was saying about the New York scene of the 70s right in her book and she was so open I mean the Cherry Vanilla's uh, memoir Lick Me um, is she's so I mean there's like a lot of just nasty sex in it and just groupie escapades and but it's so she's so unapologetic and is so in love with the music um that yeah that that book I love too yeah and and the way that it um doesn't apologize for for any of that behavior and it doesn't fetishize it and it's Mm -hmm. not like you know dudes who write about groupies and like how cool they were you know um coming from a woman's voice you know similar to you know pamela day bars um i'm with the band you know is sort of one of those major touchstones in that genre too and and pamela's great but has more of that teeny bopper kind of voice Mm -hmm. in it i mean she talks about the sex but there is a lot of that beatles love and being in your bedroom and listening to the beatles whereas like vanilla was just like was also an artist too and so she talks about sort of of like working at um, the ad agency that she was working at for mm-hmm. a long time. And and, and I, I think that that's a, a really unique part of her story too. Yeah. Because one thing in mentioning the Levitan book, I don't think either one of us have a lot of fiction about music. Well, you mentioned the perfect example, which is kind of a mem- memoir-y, like, yeah, it's, you could, it's not fiction. No, no, but it, yeah. but as, as a kind of creative memoir and comic, I guess it sort of falls into sort of a more... Narrative. A more narrative uh, uh, vein. Uh, the one that I I love is the uh, the Michael Moorcock short story. Yeah. Are you going to read some of us? <laughs> I, I think I so, mentioned Some of that for us, yeah. Because it was the only one, as we talked about this, that I, I uh, thought of as, as a work of fiction. And there's probably other ones I'm forgetting, but he has a story called A Dead Singer, uh, published in, let's see, it's in a collection called Dying for Tomorrow. Uh, it was first published in 1974. And it's a story of the ghost of Jimi Hendrix coming back and hanging out with one of his roadies and going to <laughs> Hawkwind shows. And if, if, if you know Michael Moorcock, you know that he wrote lyrics for Hawkwind and was sort of their, their, um, their muse along with Blue Oyster Cult later on. And uh, it's just a really powerful piece because probably because he doesn't really try to write about what the music sounds like mm. at all. He, he does is like you said, with the, the Levitan novel, it, it it gives you a really strong sense of place, this sort of, you know, England in the early to mid 70s after, you know, flower power and and the uh, revolutions of the 60s have sort of fallen away. And, and it's right before the punk era begins. And so in the first chapter of, of, of it's really not even a novella, it is a short story, but it's divided by chapters. You have Hendrix or his ghost in this camper van. Uh, with Mo, uh, the uh, the roadie, and I'll just read this passage just, yeah, just yeah, to kind of yeah. because it's because Moorcock is again known for his fantasy novels, rightly so. Um, but some of his his other fictions is a little more experimental, and this is one of those pieces that doesn't fall into any. It's not science fiction, and it's not quite fantasy. So it's it's a uh, it's it's an interesting piece. And at the end at the end of this chapter, anyway, they're in this camper van. And they're about to set off on their adventures. And this is what uh, Moorcock says. Um, Previously, there hadn't been a day when Mo hadn't put something of Jimmy's on. In his room in Lancaster Road, in the truck when he was roading for light and later for the deep fix, even when he'd gone to the house during his short-lived conversion to Scientology, he'd been able to plug his earbead into his cassette recorder for an hour or so. While Jimmy's physical presence made up for a lot 
and stop the worst of the withdrawal symptoms, it was still difficult. No amount of Mandrak's speed or boost could counter his need for the music, and consequently, the shakes were getting just a bit worse each day. Most sometimes felt that he was paying some kind of price for Jimmy's trust in him. That was good karma, so he didn't mind. He was used to the shakes anyway. You could get used to anything. He looked at his sinewy, tattooed arms stretched before him, the hands gripping the steering wheel. The world snake was wriggling again, black, red, and green. It coiled slowly down his skin, round his wrist, and began to inch towards his elbow. He fixed his eyes back on the road. <laughs> so is that about Hendrix, about his ghost? Yes. Explicitly so? No. But does it convey what it's like to listen to those records? Mm-hmm. I think it does. Yeah. As this roadie is, you know, recovering from an addiction and, and, and traveling with this ghost of someone he admires, or maybe it's a delusion that he's having. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like the fact that it's a story about music that doesn't try to describe what the music yeah. is. Yeah. It just, it just gives you those sense impressions. And then if you love the music, you'll resonate with them. If you don't know the music, maybe it will interest you in, in listening, listening to it. Because those sentences to me read like, electric ladyland sounds mm. you know they they have a kind of um like he says sinewy snake-like quality and the fact that he was able to pick up on that in this fictionalized context i think really makes for interesting reading in that piece of fiction well and i love too just what you said about like traveling with his ghost you yeah. know because it's like and that's i think that is a way to sort of you know sum up what we've been saying is yeah. that like that's that's the benefit of these books that are are so deeply engaged with with music beyond beyond being self-promotion or or right. commodity you know these books that really um delve deeply into music they become these ghost companions yeah, that exactly. you that you carry with right. you um and you stay in conversation with you right, know exactly which he's exactly and in, in, in the story he's in conversation with right. his ghost right and it, it does sum up a lot of these other ones i think in that way and and that's yeah a sort of a again a, a way to describe um, yeah what it is we're responding to mm-hmm. in in these ones that we respond to is they become these friends you know yeah. that that again you know you were just saying that the uh, uh, no direction home you know the Bob mm-hmm. Dylan book you haven't read it in thirty years but it's it's on the table you know it's, yeah. you have a copy and it's mm-hmm. something that you think of when you think about mm-hmm. music criticism and, and when you think about Dylan and, mm-hmm. and it informs informs the way you think through those things even even still oh in the Halen book which I yeah. don't even have a copy of anymore I don't know I don't know what I did with my my old uh, penguin edition of it but but that's it's so it's so much a part of my brain and, and everything uh, that came later for me that it's it's still uh, really resonant even though I again I haven't read it in you know close to 30 years either so any parting thoughts before we before well, we wrap up I think we should sum up what have we learned today number one <laughs> Hall and Oates needs to be listened to more seriously. Just, I was on such you know? a, a before we were all on quarantine. I was like listening to Hall and Oates like every day, like on my commute, and they're just, I, you know, and I was just listening to like a greatest hits collection. Yeah. But it was like, oh my god, they're so good. So, <laughs> I think that we've learned that Celine Dion and um, Elliot Smith, Elliot Smith are are working in the same general territory with each other musically speaking and and in the way that they reach people in the way that they reach people uh what else can we say to sum up <laughs> <laughs> when you're when you're writing about um small 
just despairing club gigs that that's that's real like i don't i mean maybe that's just like our damage as musicians like (laughs) (laughs) that's why we're hungry for those kind of stories rather than the rock and roll glory because that's like we always say in uh uh, Flight of the Concord. It's right. a scene of them playing in the airport lounge to like two people. Is <laughs> is so so accurate that it's not even funny. <laughs> even though no, it's, it's true. quite funny, yeah. Um, and you know, I, I one other thing I was remembering as we were talking about these and about taste versus what's considered good or not good. Um, did you ever in high school or middle school have? have like a magazine sale, kind of like a bake sale. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Right, a fundraiser, right? Yeah, we get you, the subscriptions. You get and, the, and you try to sell as many subscriptions as you can. Did you ever win anything from that when you had one of those? Did oh, God, ever? no. I mean, the only okay. the only time I ever won anything was when I was in Girl Scouts, and it was right after my my either my, I don't know if my mom had died or uh-huh. if she was really sick, and my dad took my... Uh, <laughs> my Girl Scout cookie sign-up sheet to work and sold just a bunch because I think I mean some of it's because people love Girl Scout cookies but also I think it was like oh god the 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 girl with the dead mother we gotta buy we gotta buy some Girl Scout cookies Um, (laughs) off topic but I I did I did I I sold enough magazine subscriptions I think in middle school it may have been it's I don't know it was either like eighth or ninth grade uh, for for my Catholic school that. Uh, I got to pick a tape. Mm. You got a list of cassettes, and that was the incentive. Was you you got the list, and you if you sold this many, you you had this list, and then whatever, all these different lists. And um, given what I had sold, I had a choice. And you know, I was thirteen, so I said to my mom and dad and my my grandmother, I said I probably should get a classical cassette. Because I'm getting older now, and I should listen to more serious music. And I, <laughs> I just love the idea of you at 12 yeah. being like, time to get serious. Yeah, because like, I'm going to high school. And I'll, I think it was my mom, or maybe my grandmother, or my it could have been any all of them in different capacities. But one of them said, classical music is wonderful, and it's very enjoyable, and you'll probably like that tape. But, but. They said, what, what do you actually want to listen to right now? Do you want to listen to Bach or Beethoven? Or do you want that Bruce Hornsby tape? And I said, I really want the Bruce Hornsby one. But I said, that's like pop music. I don't know if I said pop music. But I said, but that's not as serious. And they said, pick what you like and like what you like. And, and don't be embarrassed if someone else tells you that what you like is wrong, unless you're listening to something that is wrong, you know, like <laughs> that's making fun of other people or being or is degrading somebody else. But if it's not doing that and you like it, then then go with it. So I got my Bruce Hornsby tape and like it, you know, the way it is, is it as good as, as Bach? It's pretty damn good. Right. I mean, wouldn't, I mean, I, I would say that it is. And, and that, that was the tape I selected and I'm still listening to that today. So. As uh, as the subtitle says, a journey to the end of taste. So yes. I think we have reached the end of yeah end of our taste (laughs) so yeah i'll put links to all these books um you know some of them are out of print and and those i'll just send you over to goodreads if you know you want to hunt down um a used copy somewhere but uh the ones that are still in print i'll i'll uh i'll kick you over to uh with a link to bookshop.org which is um uh, where you can sort of gather not only the books that we've talked about here, but um, other books that have come up in conversation in mm-hmm. previous podcasts. So those will be available for those of you uh, who might be intrigued by by everything we've just chatted about here today. 
So thanks for for talking through all of these all these uh, fascinating insights with me, Brian. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Next time we'll talk about Sammy Hagar and Dave. Well, next time we got to yeah. do music movies. Music movies. Because no, that's we'll a whole that other time. ball of wax. Well, if yeah. anybody has any requests about movies, music movies they would like us to talk about that we haven't seen, we can, <laughs> yeah, we right can in, do that. Right, right in, in and show, we'll, yeah. we'll do that. But no, we, we'll do that one next time. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Thanks. My dad was a gigging musician, and growing up, I loved listening in on his conversations about music with his fellow bandmates and other aficionados. Listening to those conversations, and even doing my best to participate in them as I got a little older, is, I think, a big part of the reason that I started this podcast in the first place. Not necessarily to talk about music exclusively, of course, but as a way of having enthusiastic conversations about the stuff that shapes people's identities, even if it's not a thing that they earn money doing. Being in conversation about people's creative practices and passions is, I think, a perfect way to investigate and encourage the expansion of possibilities beyond the dichotomy of thinking that the only choices in life are somehow to either succumb to grindingly repetitive daily capitalist labor or to, you know, live your dream, embrace your highest potential. I'm more interested in how we re-weird our lives so that that dichotomy has less power over us, so that there's a genuine space opened up to dream ourselves into more benevolent mischief. And if the notion of going on the radio in the early 2000s to extol the virtues of Hall & Oates to a bunch of undergraduates isn't benevolent mischief, well, I don't know what is. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Brian Kremens, be sure to circle back around to episode number six of I'll Follow You, where we discuss how we collaborated on the recording of our latest album, American Romantic Music, which is available now on Bandcamp. As always, full show notes for this episode are up on my blog, queenofpeaches.com. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.